Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. KYW Original Podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Flashpoint Podcast. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. We are walking you through the flames. This week, the debate focuses on Philadelphia's one-party political system. With the Pennsylvania primary over, the election is basically decided. So what's the impact? What you end up with is no real competition. The recent election shakeups. If you provide the opportunity for a credible challenger, Philly voters are going to respond. Is it a signal that change is coming? The South Philly co-ed who stood up to men as they sexually assaulted another woman. My only thought was like, I'm going to get her back into her house. The rising college senior who's snagging national headlines and awards for her courage. We'll be right back. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program. Organ donors save lives. Register today at DonorsOne.org. This is Flashpoint, where we talk about the issues that get everyone hot and bothered. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. The focus is Philadelphia's one-party political system. Now, while there was major competition for judicial seats and in the city council at large races, in most district races, the incumbents sat largely unchallenged. And with a Democrat-dominated city, those who win the primary are likely to crush it in the general election. So what's the impact? Is this good or bad politics? And it's change on the horizon. With me in the studio to discuss this flashpoint is Allie Perlman. She is executive director of Philadelphia 3.0. On the phone, we have G. Terry Madonna. He's a political science professor at Franklin and Marshall College. And finally, we have Mustafa Rashid. He is CEO of Bellevue Strategies. Everybody, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you for having me. The political primary, it saw some shakeups, but it was also a decided race in the case of like the mayor's office. And so I want to start with you, Professor Madonna. This is a Democratic city. Is this good or bad for our politics here? Well, it depends what side you're on. If you're a Democrat in the city of Philadelphia, you're not unhappy that for all practical purposes, the primary is the general election. The Democrats have a seven to one voter registration edge and Philadelphia up until the 1950s, from the end of the Civil War, was essentially a Republican city, which a lot of folks may not believe. And then there went through a transition with each passing decade became more heavily Democratic, as I said, seven, seven to one. But basically it's unhealthy whether you're in rural and small town 
America, rural and small town Pennsylvania, which tends to be heavily Republican, or urban America, urban Pennsylvania in particular, which tends to be heavily Democratic. What you end up with is no real competition other than a primary. And very often in primaries where you have reasonable organizations, and in the case of Philadelphia with word leaders and a structure, a political Mm -hmm. structure, uh, that literally what those folks do is the election. Overall, the turnout was actually up a bit. It looked like about 24-25% of voter turnout, which is higher Mm -hmm. than uh, these kinds of primaries throughout much of the rest of the state of Pennsylvania. Yeah, yeah, and I want to jump over to Allison, Allie, because, Allie, you know, for years, it's been hard to unseat, you know, incumbents, especially folks who've been in uh, office for decades, like in the 3rd District. What was the strategy, and how'd you know that this time it, it would work? And it, and it, I mean, she did pretty well. Yeah, I mean, I would say taking a step back, there's, I'm coming to the table, and I think a lot of folks are coming to the table with the belief that, Voters want choice when they walk into the voting booth. And there almost never is an option for folks in district council races. So to put the finer point on it, in the last seven election cycles, there have been zero upsets on the district council side when that district mm-hmm. council in person was serving a full term coming in. So that's 140 elections between the primary and the general in these seven cycles in 10 districts. That's broken politics. That's broken democracy. And so – I think that the, it is – Philadelphia is no different. Philadelphia voters are no different than voters anywhere else. They want to be able to express, express their pleasure or displeasure with their elected officials when they go in to vote. And if you provide the opportunity for a credible challenger to be in the running, to be participating in that marketplace of ideas, Philly voters are going to respond because voters just want to be treated with respect and be provided with information about candidates and issues and they want to have a choice, and they want to be able to hold folks accountable. Mustafa, um, do you see this this change that happened in the 3rd District? Is this going to be a change of tide across the city for the next election? Challengers, perspective challengers, perspective credible challengers will take a look at this and say, hey, why not me next time? Um, because there's been a, a recent upset, and I think the last time there was one was 1995 in the 7th District. And so that, I wouldn't even say that was even for this generation. Most people now don't remember or have any recollection of, of, of the circumstances that led to that. But I think it sets a, a precedent for moving forward that more people want to get involved and more people want to present themselves as an alternative choice when folks step in the voting booth. And I, I'm hopeful that we'll be better off with a broader participation in our democracy. And, and jump in, Terry. Go, go right ahead. Yeah, I mean... There's another problem with the ballot in Pennsylvania when you get to municipal elections, and that is that it's so lengthy, it's so complex, Mm. that the average voter knows precious little, unless there's a scandal or there's something going on with an individual that's, you know, seeking uh, an office that uh, strikes home, that gets, you know, on KYW and the newspapers and other media outlets. The voters actually know very, very little about the candidates. That's point number one. Point number two is, why are we electing people like Register of Wills and sheriffs outside of Philadelphia and other places? If the county doesn't have home rule, they're electing coroners, they're electing all sorts of officials whose jobs are basically administrative. They're not policymaking. The ballot is long, it's complex, and in some cases it's filled with 50 to 60 names 
given all the primary, given all the offices to be, to move forward, you know, in other words, candidates to be nominated. And it, it's really very difficult for the average voter, as someone who's polled in this state since 1991 and in the distant past in the city of Philadelphia, I want to assure you that the voters know precious little about uh, the vast majority of these candidates. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I, I, I want to jump over and talk about this because part of it was the 29 people running for five Democratic <laughs> city council at large seats. Um, there were a lot of people. You guys uh, over at Philadelphia 3.0, you endorsed four candidates, one in a district race. And so how did you kind of you know, decide who to select. We came to the table having learned a lesson from 2015 when we supported four challengers running. And the lesson that we learned was it is entirely too difficult to support that many folks when the field was even as crowded as it was then, let alone what the ballot looked like in 2019. Yeah. So our sensibility was coming into this that there were two two candidates who were challengers last time who we supported, Derek Green and Alan Dom. They earned our support again this time around running for re-election. And we knew going into our endorsement process that we realistically were only going to be able to support one challenger, especially when the field looked the way that it did. It's so tough because you want real people to run for office in Philadelphia and you don't want to discourage people from participating in electoral politics. But it does, to Terry's point, make it so, so difficult for voters to to ha- bring any real level of discernment into the ballot with them, just because then it's unrealistic to expect folks to have expertise across all of the different offices. What subject, even know what subject matter expertise is relevant to the point of you know what what skill set should one bring to being the register of wills? I don't think there actually is one. Frankly, it's a balance that we're going to have to try to strike in terms of wanting to encourage participation, but also wanting to create the conditions where turnover is possible and turnover is significantly yeah. less possible in the ballot is stacked. Uh, Mustafa, can you talk about this? Because Mustafa was on, we, we specifically analyzed that at-large city council race. What does right. that do to Philadelphia politics when you can win with like 5 6% of the vote? It was either 1978 or, or, the, or the mid-90s, the last time that the mm-hmm. threshold, and Councilman Greenlee pointed this out to us, that the threshold to get on the ballot for at-large races was raised. And I, I think it may be time to take a look at doing that again, and that will help make sure that folks who are running for at-large offices um, are more have a more credible operation. And because uh, some candidates they they got on the ballot and then they didn't run a credible operation at all, but their names were on there, and then you're asking voters to try to discern what people are about, what their policy positions are, just because the name that's on the ballot. And I'm, I'm not sure if that was well served, the electorate was well served with that process. So perhaps taking a look again at raising the requirements to get on the ballot um, will help ensure that we get more qualified people that are running for office. Yeah, and, and I mean, you had people who raised no money, uh, who owed money, uh, who were all on the ballot, crowding it out. And um, Willie Singletary was on the ballot. I, I know it was it was, yeah, it, was yeah. it was it was it was getting a little crazy. Yeah, it got a little crazy, right. and then you take the attention away oh, from reputable people. Yeah, well, I mean, he, he, he more, um, received more sorry. more complicated. Imagine we elect appeals courts judges in Pennsylvania, Commonwealth, Superior, and Supreme courts. This year, we we're going to elect two mm. individuals to the Pennsylvania Superior Court, a very important court that handles a lot of appeals, criminal and civil. And so imagine you're running statewide, not just in Philadelphia, but statewide. 
in a in a in a uh, in a party nomination where under the canons of ethics these candidates are not allowed to talk about issues that are likely to come before the court so basically they're talking about their biography yeah. and their and their experiences but more significantly who knew these candidates who had any clue who they were there were some television commercials towards the end but we're talking about the entire state of Pennsylvania and we're still electing uh, jurists in a situation where they know the voters know even less than they do folks running for city council in the, in Philadelphia yeah we got to talk about the Republican Party because uh, I mean they endorsed for mayor Daphne Goggins as their candidate she was on disability at the time eventually she dropped out uh, citing some mental health challenges but what does it do you know to city politics when I mean literally there is no viable party candidate uh, other than within your own party and folks can win with less than six percent of the vote there's no competition meaning you go through a primary process where you might have to go out and devote months and months to campaign to win a nomination and then you move into a general election where your odds are winning are a thousand to one or whatever we might speculate that they're about and so what tends to happen is not only do you have situations like the one you're just discussing, but in many counties across the state, the party that's in the minority doesn't even file candidates for the office. They can't even find individuals to put their names on the ballot. And you could go through the county ballots throughout the state and find that to be remarkably true. And so not only don't you have competition in a primary, you don't even have a competition in the general election because of the nature of of, of one party control in, uh, prop, in, a, in a majority of the 67 counties in our state. Yeah, and this is this is not just Philly. This is a problem, of course, Absolutely. across. And, and Ali, I know that uh, Philadelphia 3.0, you, you all support both parties if that's necessary. How do you, I mean, because at this point it's, in Philly there was nobody else but Democrats. I mean, I think that the solution has to be a structural change. From where I sit, the best sort of tweak that we can make to our election system, which would require both state and municipal action. So it's a heavy lift going in. Yeah. But would be to create the conditions under which individuals running for executive office at a minimum, so mayor and real executive office, so mayor, controller, DA, would have a top two runoff. So the, the function of this would be to ensure that the general election had at least sort of like the foundation of a competitive race because the top two finishers coming out of the primary would then effectively run it off in the general. You have it in Chicago. I think the only way in the Mm. absence of figuring out how you could have a viable alternative party to the Democratic Party, if you even want that, right? It's it's the only way that you can ensure that the general election matters is to create more competition within the majority party. And places do it. There's about 300,000 people who are, don't identify as Democrats, who are essentially disenfranchised in a lot of ways because they can't vote on at the primary um, for the Democratic person. And so then the general election is pretty much done. And so how do you wrap in those 300,000 people that don't identify within the party and they basically have no say in government in Philadelphia? It's 
a quandary. Um, you have to decide if you want to change your voter registration so that you can participate mm-hmm. in the process. And for a lot of people, that's an you know that's an existential crisis. That's not who they are. It's not what they want to do. And it just it overwhelmingly puts the emphasis on the primary. And I, I do think the way that Chicago does it, and I heard of other a few other places that do it as well uh, with the runoff, they, they seem to at least get some competition in their primary. It doesn't open up to independents and, uh, or other parties, but it at least gives you some competition to know that the general isn't a coronation. I don't know if there's an appetite here to do that in Philadelphia, but you know, if, if other places seem to have a better handle on doing it than we do, it is worth having a look at it. President Pro Tem of the Pennsylvania Senate, Joe Scarnati, has been proposing a bill that would literally allow what's called unaffiliated voters that would be able to vote in the Democratic and Republican primaries, for example. Uh, That bill has not gotten, the proposal has not gotten a lot of support because if you're a Democrat in Philadelphia or you're a Republican, let's say, in Tioga County, or any other county we could I could mention, and you're a party leader and you're involved heavily in politics, that's something you, you want to avoid. You don't want unaffiliated voters to be able to perhaps be decisive in the outcome of your primary. You know your own party voters. You have a sense about who they are and how they're likely to vote. What you don't want is to add a mysterious element into it like... Yeah thousands of people who could enter into the process. And so bills like that have been introduced over the years. And a majority of states do have either primaries in which anyone can go back and forth. Republicans could vote in Democratic primaries and vice versa. And or unaffiliated voters could pick a primary and vote in that primary. And I want to talk about the sheriff's race quickly, because originally... Uh, this shows the power of a one-party system. Originally, the Democratic Party here in Philadelphia supported Jewel Williams. And then they uh, revoked that endorsement. He lost badly to Rochelle Bilal, uh, who now is very likely to be the first black woman <laughs> uh, sheriff uh, in Philadelphia. I mean, can we talk about what, how the stagnation that could possibly happen when you have a one-party system that could possibly choose someone who clearly they had they they rethought the whole situation, Ali. I mean, it was crazy. It was crazy, and I would say that there was sort of this intermediate step where the party said, "We are not, as the county city committee, going to be endorsing Jewel Williams, but we're going to leave it up to ward leaders. And if in those wards, the ward decides that they are going to endorse Jewel." We, we will, you know, print the sample ballots for them with Jewel's name on them. And 55 of the 69 yes. wards in Philadelphia ended up with Jewel Williams' name on them. So I would say that it's, you know, it's sort of like sticky to say that it was, or at least squishy to say that the party had tried to, like, move away from the endorsement. Like, mm-hmm. nominally they did, but he still he still ended up on more sample ballots than anyone else did. And I will say that it's I don't think that you're often pleasantly surprised in Philadelphia as someone who pays attention to politics and believes that competitive elections are essential for our civic health, but this was one of those cases where it really did feel like the voters were informed enough to know going into the booth that he was an unacceptable candidate and that there was enough of a sensibility around who the strongest challenger was that despite the fact that there were two women challengers in the race right. That yeah. he was able, that Rochelle was able to sort of surface from that and end up with the win. Now, what I would say would be sort of like a curio that we might keep in mind moving forward is whether we see if the sort of like establishment players in the city 
aspire to have a competitive general election in the sheriff's race and wills both or one or the other by introducing a more sort of party friendly candidate as an independent into those races to try to sort of like grab those offices back that they sort of like have always assumed that they have should have ultimate authority over in terms of like coronating their person in those seats. And then they were they were both upsets. And so you have to feel like there's maybe, you know, there might be sort of like a response to that. They didn't pay attention, (laughs) pay enough attention to register of wills, I guess. And that's how they got crushed in that uh, particular uh, race. I guess it obviously could very well breed corruption when you have a one party system, uh, a professor and Mustafa that's able to just pick people that the party, the members of the party, the voters don't like and they they show that they don't like them um, through their, you know, voting at the ballot box. That's always a risk. And I mean, I think that this city is is changing. You had some progressive organizations that supported candidates, different candidates than the party-backed candidate in the city. I think the ward leaders that typically dominate uh, Philadelphia politics, I won't say they're on their way out, but I don't think the same kind of power that they exhibited in the past is going to be evident, uh, even more evident than it is now in the future. I think where there is there is going to be, there is change taking place, as we've just seen in a couple of upsets. Mm. Uh, but by and large, to your point, whenever the, you lack competition, when in, whenever the primary is the end of basically the end of an election, and where you have a handful of people sitting in a room picking a candidate, uh, it's conceivable that you know they're going to end up supporting individuals that haven't been vet- vetted publicly very well, and almost anything can happen. You've got. Um You've, so on the on the other point, you've got a decent random sampling now of municipal elections. So the controllers race in 2017, um, where the party backed a, a long mm-hmm. three four term incumbent lost um, to a first time candidate. So that I, I think that there have been times uh, recently that you could point at and say, okay, well maybe the machine, as it as it were, is still powerful sometimes. But when when voters have made up their mind and said they want to do something different. Um, recently, they've shown that they that they will that they'll be independent minded and they'll make up their their own choice. They'll have their own choices about who they want to see as a candidate. So, I think if you're interested in change and you're interested for new direction and, and people who are doing things differently, you should be encouraged about what it is that you're seeing um, at the municipal level. Yeah, I just wonder. There's you know you could have whole races where people the incumbents barely. Campaign. That's the typical district council race, though, is what you're describing. Yes. And if, if yes. you look at these district council races over the last six or seven cycles, you'll see that the typical race is the incumbent running without a challenger. And even where there is a challenger, the incumbent wins by, on average, 80 points. And it's not, it's because the challenger does not have typically the resources, even if that challenger has his or her finger on the pulse to know what the issues are to talk to voters about does not have the resources to, to get his or her message out, to communicate, to be able to run a real race. And these are, these are consequences of structural issues in our election system and the outcome of incumbents being able to create a process that favors incumbency. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess with Philly 3.0, you guys had some victories here. This is sort of wind in the sails for you all. Absolutely. And, I, and from where we sit... There really just is, to add on to Mustafa's point, there's just, there's building evidence that voters are looking for something different, or at least that they'll be open-minded to something different. 
And yeah. I think that the opportunity that we have as a city in front of us over the next four years as we head into an open mayoral in 2023 is to take seriously the fact that voters want change, want new voices, want competition at the ballot. They want to be able to hold their elected officials accountable. I assume that's scary for some folks, but I also find it really energizing and invigorating because it suggests that we can fix our democracy in Philly. Because this is Flashpoint, we do have to wrap this up. And so I want each of you to take a second and just sort of think. We are seeing change. The city is changing. Uh, And our politics, this election showed that things could change. So who are the winners and losers as we shift and we look towards 2023. And Allie, we'll start with you and end with you, Professor Madonna. Winners, absolutely voters of Philadelphia. The more competition, real credible competition there is on the ballot, the better it is for the city, period. Losers, it's got to just be the folks who have assumed that the old system would always, would perennially produce the same results over and over again. And what we're seeing now from 2017 to today is that the old system may have produced the same results over and over again, but we have a new system now. All right, Mustafa. Winners, I would say, is the the process that um, people who may not have thought about running for office uh, a week ago now look at themselves and say, hey, I have a story I'd like to tell. I have a vision for an office that I think that I could serve. Maybe encouraged by what they saw last week that two new younger candidates came in um, mm. and a district council race was overturned. So I, I think that the process itself, people who want to get into involved are, are the winners. Losers, I, I think, is 70 some odd percent of the electorate that didn't show up. Um, that didn't participate, and for whatever those reasons are, um, decisions were made on their behalf by a small minority of the city that will affect them for the next four or eight years. And so I would say that even if they came out and voted like their counterparts did, not having participation in the process, I think, makes you ultimately a loser. All right. Final word, Professor. The winners are connected to change. If indeed the change that has been described takes place and we have more open nominations with more viable candidates coming forward, then democracy in this case is also the winner. I'm not as convinced it's going to take place as quickly as some Mm -hmm. people think it will or would like it to be. The losers, I think, in a a democracy, the public as a whole, it's all of us as citizens as a whole. That's the loss when you have a closed system without a lot of competition. Yeah. Well, with that, I want to say thank you to Ali Perelman. Thank you to Terry Madonna. And thank you to Mustafa Rashid for coming on Flashpoint and talking about this issue in the news. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. Next up, she saw a sexual assault taking place in a crowd and was the only one brave enough to step up. Knowing that this was not only happening, but it was being reported. The South Philly co-ed who's snagging national headlines and awards for her courage. We'll be right back. It's the smart look at the issues catching fire in Philadelphia. Flashpoint. What we have is a crisis. This goes way beyond just the perpetrator. You know how many times I had stopped people in front of my house from shooting up? It was a moment where black and brown people on the margins got to say, no, we've been hurting. I think we forget that you came from somewhere else, too. Host Cherry Gregg walks you through the flames. On air Saturday evenings at 9.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30. Or search the Flashpoint podcast on the Radio.com app. Hey guys, listen up. When you're done with the show, would you do me a favor? Please provide a review and rate this podcast. And feel free to provide feedback often. We need reviews to push us to the top. Now back to the show. Thanks all. 
This is Flashpoint, where we talk about the issues that get everyone hot and bothered. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. And one thing that gets our region hot under the collar is sexual assault. And one South Philadelphia woman has made national headlines for taking a stand. She helped a young woman being victimized at an off-campus party. Adriana Brannon is a rising senior at Indiana University of Pennsylvania, and she is the recent recipient of the 2019 Joe Biden Courage Award, which celebrates student heroes working to stop sexual assault. Welcome to Flashpoint, Adriana. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. So first, congratulations on your award. That's amazing. It's really, it's been an amazing experience. I'm very, very lucky to have gotten the award. Yeah. So I read about your story and I, my mouth flew open. And let's go back to that day in September. You were off campus. Tell us about it. Yeah. So a normal Saturday night, I went out with two of my roommates to a very insignificant party. I really don't even remember much about it. It closed down probably about 1231 in the morning and everybody left immediately and started walking down the road back to campus. Probably 30 or 40 people were on the street. And as we were walking, over to my left, there were these very long driveways, took about a minute to get down, and a woman was screaming about wanting a cigarette or something along those lines. She was very drunk. Nothing out of the ordinary that you'd think of. But as I looked to my left, I realized that her breast had fallen out of her shirt and was completely exposed. And I think my initial reaction was like, oh my God, that's so shocking. Like, I don't want to be involved. I turned around for just a moment. I immediately heard men's voices, angry, sexual primal in sort of ways, uh, just terrible, terrible, vile language. I immediately turned back around. and She had gotten to the bottom of her driveway and was now surrounded by eight to ten men. I really couldn't even see her much anymore, except that I did see a hand on her breast, um, and I saw flashes from cell phones. I didn't even say anything to my friends before I immediately started, like, running towards her. Um, I started to push through the men um, and heard sexual comments about my own body. Um, and uh, as soon as they saw me start to pull up her shirt and grab her to take her up her driveway, um, their voices went from very sexual to extremely angry. Um, I felt grips on my body um, and hands grabbing at me and her. They were really angry that we were ruining their good time, that kind of thing. Um, and so, I, but I had such aggressive tunnel vision. My only thought was like, I'm going to get her back into her house. There's nothing else on my mind. So I grabbed her, led her by her hand up, up the driveway. And she, at first she resisted. She was really, really drunk and just completely inebriated, had no idea what was going on. She was telling me she just wanted a cigarette. And I told her, girl, like, they're not going to give you a cigarette. I, I promise we're going to take you back home. Um, and she said, thank you. And she was fine. And as soon as I got her to the top of the driveway, her friends came out. And they hadn't seen anything. They just saw that their drunk friend wandered onto their front yard. And so I gave them her to them and asked that they make sure that she gets to sleep, she gets water and stuff like that. And I was still incredibly angry and raging by the situation. And I turned around and ran back down the driveway. And the men had started to disperse. And I didn't know exactly which ones were which. So I just started going up to all the men I possibly could find calling them monsters and predators for taking photos of a vulnerable girl, told them that it was completely illegal and that I was going to report them and that if any of those photos got out, that I hope they got jail time. Wow. Um, I At this point, I had two of my roommates behind me, and they didn't say much, but just having that kind of solidarity, having somebody support you, knowing that you know, you're know you going up to – I must have gone up to 20, 20 people, big groups of men that were completely denying everything, that were very – angry that I was accusing them of anything like that. So it was a lot of volatility between us. But it was really great to just have a support system in that kind of minute. What made you snap into action? Because a lot of people see something like that and they're a little hesitant. 
it was it was the phones. It was the flashes of of the cameras where I I mean, like, I think you're just kind of shocked when you see somebody. There's dozens of people on the street. Everybody is around. Everyone can see her. And there is somebody that feels comfortable enough to sexually assault her in front of all of these people by grabbing her breast. And that's so incredibly shocking in the moment. And then I think something about cell phone cameras, knowing that this was not only happening, but it was being recorded, that this was going to be possibly put on the Internet and put on social media and could ruin her life um, or could really, really traumatize her in some some really significant way, which just immediately really hit something to the core. You know, a lot of people panic yeah. uh, and they have no idea what to do in moments like that. Absolutely. So, I mean, part of my job at my university is teaching people about how to be proactive in those sorts of situations. So I teach bystander intervention with like mm. Green Dot and such all the time. So I personally am the kind of person that's always been headstrong. Uh, if I see something I don't like, I'm going to say something about it. Um, and I need to get involved if somebody's being hurt or harmed in any sort of way. It's just how I've been taught. It's my family. It's it's my culture. It's my life. I meet people constantly that are like, in that situation, I would have been shocked. I would have been shy. I would have been afraid. Um, I wouldn't have been able to do what you did. And I don't believe that. I believe that even if you weren't able to run up to them, to get involved, to you know confront them, you could have called the police. You could have gotten somebody that would have. It's about finding some way around your barriers instead of succumbing to them. And accepting that you're not going to be able to do anything. Oh, I'm powerless in this situation. When you're definitely not. You can do something without a doubt. Now, you mentioned you're from Philadelphia. Yeah. Philly girl. And so, (laughs) you know, you think, what about your upbringing made you so, because you're a tiny woman. You're not very big. (laughs) But you, I could see you running stuff. Like, I could see, like, those guys had to be scared of you coming over there. Um, I have a long history of activism. <laughs> I mean, that's that's definitely part of it. I was um, 2015's Pride Youth Grand Marshal. I've I've been involved in communities and uh, not just communities, but uh, activism based, you know, protests and and amazing events that have really shown me how to use my voice uh, and to utilize that kind of power and to you know take up space as much as I possibly can. Um, so that's definitely part of it. But I was also I was raised by a woman that. Uh, would not accept to not be heard. Shout out to your mom. (laughs) (laughs) My parents have always been headstrong people. I watched my dad run into a burning building to take, you know, plastic and cardboard out before the fire department got there because they were afraid of the fire spreading when I was like seven years old. So it's always been like, you're going to be proactive if this is a situation that involves danger and there's no other option because there's such a good chance that no one else will do anything. So that I don't know. I've, I've just always thought like, who cares how tall I am or how much I weigh or what I look like? I'm going to do something. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and, and I say that because, you know, people have all these reasons. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I say that yes. not because of, you know, of to, and in, you know, to say your size matters. I don't think it matters. But people think they're saying, well, I'm what I can't fight these people. There's 10 of them. I can't fight them. I'm this. I'm that. I'm not, you know, and, and you, all this going on, and you were, like, brave enough to, to come up there. You know, a good point of that, of the size thing, um, uh, and an excuse that people sometimes use as to why not to yeah. be proactive in those situations. I, I was being harassed at a party not too long ago uh, by a much bigger, taller man um, that was uh, being a little uncomfortable towards me, and I looked uncomfortable. And my male friends noticed, but none of them did anything. Mm. And it took one of my female friends that is, you know, about the same height and size as me um, to do 
to do anything and to call him out for just, you know, leave her alone. You know, just, you know, you're being a little too strong. Got to gotta step off a little bit. Um, it wasn't anything big, but it did matter a lot to me to have somebody stand up for me in those moments. And I did come back to my male friends. And I went, well, you know, why didn't you step in? Why didn't you say anything? And they went, oh, well, I'm a small guy. You know, I, what, what, what if he did something to me? And I went, well, you know, I'm a small woman. And you, he could have very easily hurt me. And you would have been fine standing by and watching that happen. You know, what was your moment as to when to step in is yeah. really the question. I think people use that, you know, it's my size. It's my personality. It's my this it's my that as to why not to step in but it's really about overcoming that finding out you know how can I be proactive in those situations what is my style as to how I can prevent harm in my own community yeah and that's that's what courage is I always say that courage is you know you can be afraid you know fear does it is but you do it despite your fear you know what I'm saying and that's what courage and that's what being brave is all about so you got this award yes Former Vice President Joe Biden has this award. What was that like? It was insane, realistically. I found out eight days before I had to be in New York City to meet the Vice President. I was losing my mind for eight days. (laughs) It was, you know, something I could have never dreamed of. When I was told, um, you know, after this event happened, I went to my Title IX coordinator and my boss at the Haven Project, Susan Graham, um, and I told them about what had happened. Um, I reported it because I was afraid that these photos could have gotten on the internet or could have gone on IUP's social media. I mean, I wanted them to know that if they did surface that they were not consensually taken. Um, I forgot about the incident after that. And I really didn't, you know, I didn't tell most of my friends about it. I didn't see it as a very abnormal kind of thing. I thought, you know, most people in that situation would have gotten involved in one way or another and tried to prevent it. Um, It wasn't until I was nominated for this award that I even thought about the incident again, and I definitely didn't think that I was going to win it. The um, the person that received this award last year had been um, shot while breaking up a sexual assault, and so that's really serious. That's you know they they succumb to a lot of harm. They they put themselves in a really really vulnerable situation, and it was it was an incredibly brave act without a doubt. And so um, I think when I looked at my own act as something that I normalized um, as extremely like you know. Any day could have happened on any Saturday to anyone. I was thinking, no, why would I get an award for this? You know, anybody could have done this. I hope anyone could do this. And I hope that people continue to do this kind of thing in their community if they see harm like that. So I was incredibly happy to see that um, somebody like myself, who I see as ordinary, as like a little, you know, South Philly girl (laughs) who went off to a state college um, is getting recognized nationally for a really, really great deed and for trying to prevent harm in my community means a lot. It's amazing. Um, And so your advice to folks, I mean, because there's there's a lot of and it's not just sexual assault or Mm -hmm. these types of actions. This is a time where good people can no longer stand by and remain silent. You know, and so your advice to folks who see things that they believe is wrong. I mean, especially happening to another uh, human. My advice consistently is that um, no matter your size or your strength or whoever you are, you are able to prevent harm in your community. And I, de- I definitely believe that. And whether that is a fight in a parking lot and you, you know, calling the police or calling security or, you know, calling somebody out or, you know, even dropping your drink just so people are distracted for a second. So they snap out of that kind of angry rage that you can sometimes get wrapped up in that's what I always ask people just think you know think creatively think what is realistic to yourself if you're not the kind of person that can run you know straight into 
um, an argument or a harmful situation and call everyone out, that's perfectly fine. But how can you work around it is really the question. What is your future? What are you, what are, you, what are your plans? You're, you're a rising senior now. So I'm a political science and religious studies double major. I really want to work um, in international affairs, but really I just want to work in politics. I really just want to give a voice to people. I, I've worked in um, so many communities, both at college where I work with sexual violence, domestic violence, and seeing how that affects communities, um, women, people of color, um, immigrants, uh, LGBTQ individuals. And then when I was my entire time in high school, I worked in the LGBTQ community um, as somebody who educated people outside the community and also did community outreach. And I organized and I worked at Pride and I just I loved it so much. But doing all of that made me realize that there's so many people that don't have a voice and don't have the opportunity to get the kind of success and the opportunities that they deserve uh, just because of their identities. So I really want to work in just giving people like that a voice and giving them the rights and the respect that they deserve in our society. Well, you definitely did that last September when you helped that young woman. Congratulations to you, uh, Adriana Brandon, on your 2019 Biden Courage Award. I see big things for you. Thank you so much. Next up, the holy month of Ramadan is coming to an end and a big celebration is planned. Prayer, food and fun. The inclusive event in an effort to build bridges between Muslims and the rest of the city. We'll be right back. This is Flashpoint, and I'm Cherry Gregg. Be sure to check out the Flashpoint podcast by downloading the Radio.com app, Apple Podcast app. All you got to do is search Flashpoint KYW. Now, we here at KYW, we are all about community, and next week, all are welcome as the Philadelphia Ramadan and Eid Fund hosts the inaugural Eid in the Park. The event hopes to bridge the gap between communities and celebrate the Muslim holiday with prayer and festivities. Here to tell us more is Salima Suswell. She's president of the Philadelphia Ramadan and Eid Fund. Welcome to Flashpoint, Salima. Thank you so much, Sherry. Uh, Thank you for the invitation. I appreciate being here. Wonderful. So this is an inaugural event. And so I should say it's an inaugural event for the Philadelphia Ramadan and Eid Fund. Mm-hmm. However, uh, Eid celebrations have been a of course of the fabric and uh, religion of Muslims. And we have hosted many Eid celebrations in the city of Philadelphia uh, since I was a child. And so under this nonprofit organization, the Philadelphia Ramadan and Eid Fund, which I founded last year to support uh, Ramadan iftar initiatives, and we also do homeless feedings in partnership with an organization called the United Uma of Philly. And then we, uh, in previous years, we donated uh, toys to children who were celebrating the Eid holiday. And so this year, I was able to partner with a very reputable Islamic leader. His name is Dr. Tahir Wyatt, and we are partnering uh, in connection, actually, with the uh, work that the Please Touch Museum is doing under their America to Zanzibar Muslim Cultures Near and Far exhibition. So we are partnering with eight local masjids just to promote the idea of unity and provide a larger experience at the cricket field on South Concourse. So you decided to bring it all together and have one big event with yeah. all these organizations together. Why? And let's be clear. I mean, there are over 50 masjids and mosque uh, communities in the city of Philadelphia. And so for me, growing up in the Philadelphia Muslim community, because I was born and raised in the Philadelphia Muslim community, I always talk about the nostalgia associated with 
um, having sort of this huge, diverse community celebration for Edel Fitzer. It's very much like it was when I was a child. And so I'm really, really excited. We have so many organizations supporting us. I don't know if you've seen any of our promotional trailer videos, but you can see from the videos that there is a lot of diversity represented in the in the local Muslim community. Mm-hmm. So we wanted to highlight that in our uh, marketing and promotion efforts and also let everyone know that, uh, just like our slogan says, all are welcome. Yeah. Um, we yeah. want people to partake in, you know, sort of the rich culture of, of Islam and to just be a part of a part of what we're doing. And so for people who are not Muslim, who don't know what Eid is, even though it's an official holiday in Philadelphia now, please explain what the celebration is and how it it, it concludes Ramadan and, and how it right. brings everyone together. So we have two major holidays. It first comes Eid al-Fitr after the close of Ramadan. And then we also have Eid al-Adha, which happens around about the time the pilgrimage happens, the Hajj. So we... Fast 29 or 30 days based upon the sighting of the moon. And so when the moon is sighted, whether uh, your community goes with the international sighting in Saudi Arabia or the local sighting, whenever your religious leader uh, determines that the moon has been sighted and that Eid is the following day, the fast is over and you prepare for the Eid holiday, and which begins at sunset on the last day of Ramadan. And so when the morning of Eid, what we do is we wear our best garments and our Eid holiday, Eid al-Fitr for 2019, will either be on the 4th or 5th based upon the traditional Islamic moon sighting. That determination will take place on the afternoon of June 3rd. And so in all of our marketing, we say June 4th or 5th based upon the sighting of the moon. Takbirs start at 830. The prayer will be at 930. And the festival begins at 11. Mm-hmm. And um, our khatib, who our religious leader, uh, who will be delivering um, our, our sermon, but also leading us in the congregational prayer. Um, he is the only American to ever, by royal decree, teach at the Prophet's Mosque. The Prophet's Mosque is uh, called Masjid An-Nabawi, and it's in Medina. It's literally where the Prophet wasallam is buried. And so he is the only American to ever teach in the English language or otherwise at this space. And, you know, some may say that that is comparable to teaching at the Vatican. It's like a huge honor. And so we are very, very, very excited and honored to have him leading this project and also to hear from him as our leader of prayer that day and also for the sermon. And so where can people get more information? More information can be found on our website, and that is phillyeatinthepark.org. Also, we are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, all handles of Philly Eat in the Park. So you can like our pages, share our posts, definitely visit the website if you're interested in Spending. There are opportunities there if you want to volunteer. We're going to have a ton of activities, moon bounces for the kids, pony rides, horse rides, laser tag, video game buses, food, fun. It's yeah. just all are welcome. Prayer, food, and fun is what the day is. So. Absolutely wonderful. And I think, you know, we've had so much divisiveness in America. Absolutely. And these are opportunities for everybody to come together. Absolutely. I mean, and that's what we want to be promoting more than anything is the spirit of unity. We ask everyone to just bring their spirit of unity 
positivity and just come out and have a really good time. Well, I want to say congratulations to the Philadelphia Ramadan and Eid Fund for bringing so many organizations together and for planning this. Uh, it's June 4th or 5th, depending upon the moon sighting. Yes, the end of Ramadan. So follow our social media and our website, phillyeatinthepark.org. Thank you so much to Salima Suswell, president of the Philadelphia Ramadan and Eid Fund. I, I wish you a happy Ramadan. Thank you so much, That's it for the Flashpoint Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this exclusive content. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Flashpoint Show. You can also follow me at Cherry Gregg. If there's an issue that makes you hot under the collar, let us know. I will walk you through the flames. As longtime British parliamentarian Winston Churchill once said, politics is almost as exciting as war and quite as dangerous. In war, you can only be killed once, but in politics, many times. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. Until next week, thanks for listening. <laughs>